And you'll need some notes for our series, the title of which is on the screen. You mean the Bible teaches that. So the guys have some. Welcome one and all to the beginning of our series that's going to cover seven topics in eight sessions. The first topic that we'll start today, we'll do today and next week. And then we'll have uh, another six topics over the next uh, six weeks. And then we'll have a a Q&A session for our final time together. So we're going to spend two weeks on the first of these issues, which is uh, homosexuality. And let me explain why we're uh, spending two weeks. One week on the rest of the issues, but two weeks on this one. It's because this issue has burst on the scene in the last 10 years especially, and because it touches on so many areas. It touches on cultural life. It touches on political life. It touches on, as we'll see in a bit, even the military, in the psychiatric and psychological professions. And it has theological ramifications as well for the church. So it's burst on the scene in the last uh, decade, especially touches a number of areas. It used to be the case with homosexuality that uh, when I was very young, uh, you would hear people say things like, look, what I do in the privacy of my bedroom is is none of your business. And that was that was where it was. If there was anything said about it, that's what it was. This is a privacy issue. I have the right to my own privacy. And so it's really none of your, it's really none of your business. But now it's no longer private, but quite public. The military uh, used to have a ban on homosexuals participating in the military, being members of the military. But then, as we'll see in the notes in a bit, that morphed into don't ask, don't tell. So that was the privacy idea. We won't ask you and you don't tell and we'll give you a zone of of privacy. But that only lasted uh, a few years and then it became full membership in, in the military. Civil unions, which were an accommodation to, to say health insurance and other kinds of benefits for uh, same-sex couples could be afforded uh, from a state perspective, civil unions have uh, morphed into uh, gay marriage now. So this now necessarily impinges upon everybody. This issue that was once a private issue, what I do in the privacy of my own bedroom is none of your business, is now an issue that everyone needs to confront in one way, in one way or another. It's not then just let me be, but rather it is moved to affirm who I am and what I'm and what I'm doing. Now, putting aside for a moment whether or not that's a valid requirement and a valid demand, when that demand is made, valid or not, it then requires participation, response on the part of those to whom the demand is made. You're either going to affirm uh, or you're going to try to, to correct. So take, for exa- uh, instance, a young person who is struggling with his or her identity and in the midst of that struggle, they determine and they make the uh, pronouncement that uh, for gender purposes, for sexual attraction purposes, uh, I am opposite 
the uh, gender of my biological birth. And they make that pronouncement that I have same-sex attraction uh, to their parents. Um, In our day and age now, our schools are being told that you must affirm that in the, the young person. But I've talked to a number of young people who believe that when they say that, they are simply asking to be let be who they are. And you see, it's much more than that. Because they're actually imposing something upon their parents. They're actually imposing something upon those who are charged with caring for them. Now again, I'm not addressing how those people should do that or how those people should respond. I'm simply making the point that when someone makes that claim, it is not simply a private claim anymore. You're now requiring something. You're now requiring a response from other people. And so I have told those young people, you need to understand that you are doing something much more beyond simply making a claim about who you are and what your desires are. That now imposes actions and requirements on other people, in particular your parents, who are responsible for you before before God from a biblical perspective. And there are then, with all of that, not only challenges for all of us, what I just said are challenges for everybody in a society where this has become, become an emerging and accelerating movement, but there are challenges in particular for what Christians should think about claims made regarding homosexuality. One of those is born that way. So is someone with same-sex attraction, if someone who is LGBT, we'll see what those are in, in a bit, but are, are people born that way? What, is, what would the Bible teach about that, and what would a Christian response and position to that be? Is homosexuality worse than other sins? It's another issue that Christians now of necessity need to need to deal with. This issue of whether or not homosexuals are born that way was just within the last month in the news in a, in a big way. Because one of the Democratic presidential candidates, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Indiana Pete Buttigieg, uh, is uh, openly gay and is married to a man and uh, called out Vice President Mike Pence. And uh, Mike Pence has gone on record over the years as being opposed to gay marriage and so on. And he said uh, to Pence, quote, your problem is with my creator. So he's making the, the claim, and again, I'm not, I'm not evaluating the claim. I'm just saying that's the claim that's being made. I'll, I'll evaluate it later. But that's the claim that's being made, is that I was made this way. I was made by God this way. So if you've got a problem then with that, your problem is not with me. Your problem is with my creator. I was born that way. I'm told that Lady Gaga has a song called Born That Way. The lady has spoken. What more can be said? We'll see. But lots of then people are making those kinds of claims. So therefore, we are spending two weeks on this very important issue. With that, then, I call your attention to page one of your notes. On these first couple of pages, we'll see how some of this has arisen and some of the effects that it's had and thus some of the challenges that it presents. American Bible-believing churches are facing a challenge that has arisen swiftly and forcefully 
in several secular arenas, psychiatric, the political, and the legal. And over these next two pages, I'll uh, go over all three of those. While a few have long asserted that homosexual behavior should be regarded as normal and that federal civil rights protection should be afforded lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and that's not used as a pejorative. That's actually a term that uh, some homosexuals use uh, of themselves. And then intersex as well. Intersex has to do with a, a deformity uh, so that there's confusion about biologically uh, what, the, what the person is. So civil rights protection should be afforded lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and intersex persons. Acceptance by wide swaths of society has come very slowly over a few decades, but it's gained stunning momentum in just the last few years. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that's often called the Bible of Psychiatry, defined homosexuality as a disorder or a sexual orientation disturbance as recently as 1987, but has since removed it altogether. The acceptance of homosexuality by the psychiatric profession has paved the way for its advance then in other areas. The removal of homosexual Homosexuality from the psychiatric canon has undoubtedly facilitated the rights of those who identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual. Adoption rights, same-sex marriage, and the repeal of military prohibitions would never have occurred if homosexuality continued to be seen as it was just a few decades ago. So that's in the psychiatric profession, which has had then effects on others. Middle of page one, politically until just a few years ago, candidates for office felt obliged to define marriage as between a man and a woman. President Obama, when he was then candidate Obama, campaigning for the White House in 2008, stated his opposition to same-sex marriage. Once elected, the administration said his views on marriage were evolving. Later, the administration announced that it would not defend in the federal courts a law enacted by Congress in 1996 called the Defense of Marriage Act, which for federal purposes defined marriage as between one man and one woman, and it allowed states to refuse to sanction or recognize same-sex marriages. That law was signed by then-President Bill Clinton, but in years after, he, that is now former President Clinton, said it was a mistake and it should be overturned. When the Defense of Marriage Act was challenged in the courts, the Obama Justice Department refused to defend it. And then there's the military. For all of its history, the military had refused to enlist open homosexuals, citing problems with unit cohesiveness if enlisted men and women were forced to share a bunkhouse with someone who practices same sex. During the 1990s, Commander-in-Chief Bill Clinton ordered the policy change to don't ask, don't tell. Instead of the military asking about sexual orientation, they would no longer ask at all, but still reserve the right to dismiss anyone who openly identified. That policy lasted through the administration of George W. Bush, until the election of Barack Obama, who changed the military's policy to, for the first time in history, allow openly gay persons to gain entry into the nation's armed services. The, the current president has changed that back, and so this is all in the, in the courts now, which brings you to the legal landscape. The legal landscape, top of page two, has shifted dramatically as well. As recently as 1986... The Supreme Court ruled that states could outlaw sodomy. So sodomy is homosexual activity uh, and so named after the biblical city of Sodom and Sodom and Gomorrah, where that was the chief sin among those uh, among those cities. 
And states could outlaw what has come to be known for millennia, sodomy. If states could outlaw homosexual behavior, then they could obviously outlaw same-sex marriage, which all 50 states did. But in 2003, the court reversed that in a 5-4 to ruling with Justice Anthony Kennedy writing the majority opinion, setting the stage for prohibitions against same-sex marriage to be challenged. And as expected, the constitutional validity of bans to same-sex marriage was indeed challenged, winding its way through the federal courts, reaching the Supreme Court just four years ago. On April 28th of 2015, the court heard oral arguments in Obergefell v. Hodges, more popularly known as the same-sex marriage case. During that session, Justice Kennedy, in the oral argument, said, quote, the definition of marriage is between one man and one woman has been with us for millennia, and it's very difficult for the court to say, oh, well, we know better. Within two months, the same Justice Kennedy would write the majority opinion in yet another 5-4 ruling that made same-sex marriage a constitutional right that cannot be abridged by any state. So that's just been within the last four years. And so I say all of this has happened very, very quickly. Within many of our lifetimes, we have moved from a society adhering to traditional Christian values to a post-Christian culture, and now to the beginning of the brave new world that Algis Huxley predicted in his book by that name. It's a world that Christian thinkers have been warning about for a good while. The late Christian philosopher and theologian Francis Schaeffer wrote in his seminal work, how should, we then, how should we then live the rise and decline of Western thought and culture? He said this, If there is no absolute moral standard, then one cannot say in a final sense that anything is right or wrong. By absolute, we mean that which always applies, that which provides a final or ultimate standard. There must be an absolute if there are to be morals. If there is no absolute beyond man's ideas, then there is no final appeal to judge between individuals and groups whose moral judgments conflict. We are merely left with conflicting opinions. So given these challenges and these changes, it's imperative for Bible-believing churches to restate what the Bible teaches and also consider how we'll interact with an increasingly hostile society and with those who are close to us, who are affected by this cultural drift. Those close to us may be in our own homes, in our families, and we need to know how what is a biblical and Christian response to that. So what do we mean by homosexuality? It is sexual desire for a member of the same sex, thus the word homo or same, hetero, different. So homosexual, same, same sex. Homosexuals seek sexual satisfaction with members of the same sex. LGBT is often used acronym that represents various manifestations, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. Lesbian refers to female homosexuals. Gay is a general term that can refer to homosexual men or women. Bisexual to sexual attraction to both males and females. Transgender designates those who identify as the opposite of their biological gender. So what does the Bible say? That What does the Bible say about this? And here are some of the key passages in the Bible. The first few are from the first part of the Bible that's called the Old Testament. In the Old Testament law in Leviticus, you have a couple of passages. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus, again, if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. 
And then you have the book of Judges. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. So this man is my guest. Do not, don't do this disgraceful, it was called a disgraceful thing. So let me just stop and talk about that. We'll go to the New Testament in a moment. But you have the first part of the Bible, and it's often quoted uh, by people who believe the Bible uh, to say, here's one of the ways we know that homosexuality is, uh, is wrong, quoting Leviticus particularly. And the objection will be raised then, well, what about all the other parts of the first part of your Bible that you don't use anymore? And it is the case that in the Old Testament, there are prohibitions against wearing mixed fabrics, for example. And of course, we don't, we don't follow those anymore. So are we picking and choosing those things which we would follow? That's the, that's the idea. And it is the case that if the only place you had prohibitions against homosexuality were in the Old Testament law, then you would have to, you would have to deal with that change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, that doesn't automatically invalidate them because many of the Old Testament laws are reflections of the character of God and thus are enduring because the character of God doesn't change. But nevertheless, if it's not mentioned or prohibited in the New Testament, then why would you be quoting the Old Testament and not applying everything that the Old Testament says? So, fair enough, there are answers to that, but they need not delay us because the New Testament does actually speak to this issue. And it does in... Romans chapter 1. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their, and this is the Bible's word, perversion. Then you have in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, you have mention of a whole laundry list of sins that if someone does not recognize them as such and is willing to fight the fight against those sins, according to the Bible, then that disqualifies them from being a Christian, ultimately disqualifies them from, from heaven. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, Male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now we'll see later in your notes, probably next week, that that passage goes on to say, and such were some of you. So in the church at Corinth, there were people who had all of these kinds of struggles in their, in their past. But we will see that Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, makes clear that that needs to be understood as a a fight to be waged, a battle to be waged, a struggle to engage. And homosexuality is is contained within it. Jude, in your New Testament, mentions Sodom and Gomorrah, saying Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So those are strong, strong, strong words. You know, from the Old Testament law, they must be put to death. And then you've got the the denouncing of homosexual activity and, and called out in Romans chapter 1. 
where Romans chapter 1 talks about the sinfulness of humanity. That's the context from verses 18 to verse 32. And the context is the universal sinfulness of humanity, but it calls out in particular this this sin. And then, of course, you have uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. So the clear teaching of Scripture is that homosexuality is sin. A homosexual lifestyle cannot be harmonized with God's standard of righteousness. Now, if you look at the Bible, that's just the deal. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible teaches. There are people, I have read them, Matthew Vines is an, is a, is an, an author who has tried mightily to reinterpret what these passages say, but to no avail. It can't be done. The Bible teaches very clearly that homosexuality is sin and that a homosexual lifestyle cannot be harmonized with God's standard of righteousness. Now, that's the deal. That's the truth. That's what the Bible teaches. If you believe the Bible, then now what flows from that is a number of questions. All right. If that's true, then why is homosexuality called out in Romans chapter 1? And why is... In the Old Testament, the death penalty prescribed for that. And that raises the question that I have at the bottom of page 3. Is homosexuality worse than other sins? And I say there that while any type of sin in desire or thought or word or deed or, or omission or commission, any type of sin and even a single sin of any type, is enough to violate God's character and damn us. And Christ's death atones equally for all sin. It is nevertheless true that some sins are distinguished by what they affect and what they represent. All right, that's a mouthful. While any type of sin, now notice the types of sins, inordinate desires are, according to the Bible, sinful. Desires that are contrary to the character of God are sinful. At the level of desire, one can sin before one has ever actually done anything with that desire. So desire is a type of sin. But then there's desire that leads to thought. That too then is sin if contrary to the character of God. In word, in deed... In commission, that is, you actually do it, you actually think it, you say it, you act in that particular way, you commit it. Or, notice, omission. That's another category of sin. That is, things that we are designed by God to desire and to think and to say and to do that we fail to do, we omit. You see how large the category of sin is according to the Bible. And you should be asking yourself, How can anyone survive the gaze of a holy God if that's the extent of sin, if sin is that wide? That's a very good question. And we will address that question perhaps at the end of our time today, but certainly at the end of our time next week. So when I talk about types of sin, we're talking about the scope of sin being that wide and a single sin of any of those types. So a single inordinate desire and a single inordinate thought or word or action or an individual 
Failure to desire what I should or think what I should or say what I should or do what I should. Sins of all my just only takes one of those. For you and for me to violate God's character and thus be damned, according to the Bible. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with the way it lays out God's character, then that is shocking that a single sin of any type could damn us. But you need to understand what the Bible teaches about the character of God. Absolutely holy, absolutely pure, and cannot and must not be violated in any way, thought, word, action. And so it's enough to damn us. James chapter 2 and verse 10, I have cited for you there. That says, if we break God's law in one point, we are guilty of all of it. That's what it says. So you break God's law in just one point, guilty of all of it. So that's the scope of sin, and Christ's death atones equally for all sin. So it doesn't matter how many or which a person has done. Every person needs the covering, the atonement that Jesus' death on the cross provided. And Jesus' death on the cross provides covering for every one of those sins from every type and no matter in what quantity they've been done or will be done. Because when we come to Christ, his blood on the cross covers our sin, not just in the past, but in the present and in the future as well. But I say there, it is nevertheless true that some sins are distinguished by what they, these two things, they affect and what they represent. And in the Bible, you have that. The effects, the consequences of some sins are greater than the effects and consequences of others. It's not that that sin will send you to hell quicker than some other sin. They're all equal in that regard. It's not that Christ had to die and and hang on the cross longer for some sins. He died equally for all sins. It is the case that some are distinguished by their effects and by what they represent. That is, middle of that paragraph. Some sins have greater consequences than others. And some represent a greater degree of corruption. I'll explain what that means. So, before we look at what the Bible says about that, you you believe, and I don't know everyone here, but I will hazard that you believe that there are some offenses that are worse in terms of their effect. If a if a an eight year old steals candy from a store, that's an offense. That's stealing. That actually breaks one of the Ten Commandments. If that eight-year-old is abused sexually by an adult, those are not the same, are they? They're both sin. They're both wrong. But one has greater effects than the other and represents something larger. So some sins have greater consequences than others and some represent a greater degree of corruption. For example, as we've seen, the penalty for homosexuality in the Old Testament was death, but then the question is why? In part, because it threatened to undermine civil order. Several years ago, 2010, I was traveling uh, to a conference with some other pastor friends, uh, and they were all younger than me, so, <laughs> yeah, thanks. And uh, 
and so they're asking they're asking me questions. Um, these were seminary graduates and um, starting out pastoring. And one of the questions was this: you know, why were there some sins that had the death penalty prescribed for them? And my answer was that in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. Many of you are familiar with that, but you know that that law, God's law, even those Levitical laws, were given to a nation. God was carrying out his work in his world through a particular nation and a particular people, the Jews and the nation of Israel. And the law was given as the governing document for the nation of Israel. And God gave all kinds of protections in that law to preserve the nation. And anything that threatened to undermine civil society, to threaten the the life of the nation, was something then that God uh, uh, would not tolerate. was an abomination to him. The Bible, we use those kinds of terms. And if you were to categorize the sins in the first part of your Bible, where the death penalty was prescribed, they fall into just a handful, just well, just a couple actually, of categories. And one of the main ones of of those categories is the undermining of civil order. Bottom of page three, Dr. Mark Snowberger has cataloged the capital offenses in the Old Testament and found that they fall into four general categories. Of those, the main horizontal offenses, that is, all sins are an offense vertically, right? Vertically is this way. So all sins are an offense from man to God. But the offenses that are uh, an offense on the horizontal level, from person to person, are those that threaten and undermine civil order. So one reason that homosexuality then was given the death penalty in the first part of your Bible, which is not, it was not operative today. We don't have the nation of Israel. God is not accomplishing his work through the nation of Israel. And so those penalties prescribed in the law are no longer operative today. But as we've seen, that homosexuality is still a sin, is said in the New Testament. Why was it given the death penalty? In part because of its effects. The consequences were greater than other sins. Top of page four. In addition to having great consequences, homosexuality also represents a clear example of idolatry, which is ultimately this, a focus on self rather than on God. It's for this reason that Romans chapter 1, which we saw above, places homosexuality in the context of idolatry. When Romans chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 talk about the exchanging that goes on, natural affections for unnatural ones and all of this affection, it actually begins with the exchange from God to idolatry. Up in verse 23, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images And then in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. And then that's all related to the now third verse that uses this word exchange. In verse 26, they exchanged exchanged the natural for the unnatural. The same Greek word that's translated in English exchanged is used throughout that passage. So homosexuality is a particularly clear representation of idolatry. Because idolatry is exchanging the glory of God for the glory of the creature. And that idolatry shows up in a number of ways, in images, but it also shows up 
in the way people misuse what this God has made, this God who made us in his image to reflect him back to him. So it is not that homosexuality is innately worse than other sins. It's worse in its effects, thus the penalty in the Old Testament. And it's also clearer in its representation of something that has a myriad of manifestations, namely idolatry. And it's the reason, then, that homosexuality is singled out in Romans chapter 1. It's the reason that homosexuality is given the penalty that it is. All right. So is it worse? Yes and no. Worse in its effects? More clear in its representation? But it, like any other sin, is enough to damn us to hell, and it, like any other sin, requires the same payment, namely the atonement of Christ on the cross. Well, that then raises another question. What are the causes of homosexual behavior? Because I started out by saying that Pete Buttigieg says to Mike Pence, your problem is with my creator who made me this way. Many people who struggle with same-sex attraction feel that way about themselves. They say, I've always been this way. And since the earliest time I can remember, this has been the way I felt and this is the way my attractions have gone. So I was born that way. What actually causes this? Let's look at that together. Many today have come to believe that homosexuality is a biological phenomenon. Homosexuals are simply born that way. Some point to scientific evidence that suggests that homosexuality, that homosexuals have different brain biology than do heterosexuals. Others suggest that the primary cause of homosexuality is early psychological influences in their environment. If one had a strong mother or no father in the home, for example, more likely to be homosexual. Or if one had early homosexual experiences forced upon them, more likely to be homosexual in later life. Now, we'll we'll go on and read uh, the rest of that in, in a bit. But underlying this idea that uh, folks may be born that way, or there may be a biological uh, cause, underlying that is, if I'm born that way, and if there's a biological cause, then I can't be held responsible then for the choices I make in light of that. That's what's underlying that. And, And so the question then is, And remember, our series is, you mean the Bible teaches that. What we want to know is, what does the Bible teach? What does the Bible teach about that question? If I was born with something, or if I'm biologically disposed toward something, can I be held responsible for that something? In this case, homosexual behavior. I want to read to you an excerpt from a case study from something called the Journal of Biblical Counseling. And David Pollison is the editor of the Journal of Biblical Counseling. And if you ever get a chance to read anything that David Pollison writes, then read it. we got some of this stuff in our resource center. And he's a brilliant guy. He's a Harvard graduate. He's got a Ph.D. in psychology. But he also is thoroughly biblical. And he understands theology. And he writes in the Journal of Biblical Theology about a case study of a woman that he calls Amelia who went to a counselor who did not have biblical moorings and she went to him about her struggles with lesbianism. And I want to read to you what David Pollison says about her claims and his analysis of those claims, okay? He says, Amelia's psychotherapy 
had two problems that lie on the surface of her story. First, her assertion that lesbian attraction was something that she, quote, never consciously chose, that it was discovered, not decided, is significant. She reiterates that she was the unwitting recipient of lesbian desires. The therapist's notion of a passive history-determined heart persuasively mapped onto this experience, and it in turn blinded both parties to the fact that Amelia's experience needs to be reinterpreted biblically, not taken at face value. A common misunderstanding of the nature of sin seems to have reinforced the psychological theory. Amelia thinks like Pelagius, not Augustine, and the Bible. I'll explain in a minute. Under the Pelagian construct, for a pattern to count as something we're responsible for, it must be a matter of conscious volition. If I consciously decided to be a lesbian, then it would count as a responsible choice and as culpable sin. But if, quote, the decision was made for me, then a causality outside herself explains her deep-seated, compulsive, and mysterious struggle. Okay, he says more. I'll read it in a second. But he says, you know, she is thinking like a Pelagian, like Pelagius. Who's that? He's a guy that lived in the 4th century, and he was a heretic. Pelagius. And Pelagius believed that people come into the world not as with a sin nature, but they come as a blank slate. And their sin comes from their choices. So you're a sinner because you sin, said Pelagius. And theoretically, if you don't sin, you're not a sinner. Augustine, on the other hand, lived at the same time, and they were opponents. And Augustine taught what the Bible teaches, that sin is not just in what we do, sin is what we are. That we're actually born with a sin nature. We are not born as blank slates. And thus, we can choose freely whether we're going to use our blank slate in a sinful way or in a righteous way. That was Pelagius. But no... Augustine understood that the Bible teaches we come into this world from the moment of conception with a sin nature. Now, if you are a Christian and you or you entertain the idea of becoming a Christian or that you are a Christian, then you have to believe what Augustine taught because he taught what the Bible teaches about us being born with a sin nature. And the fact that we are born with a sin nature is why then we have these desires and thoughts, and words, and actions, and why we commit them and omit them, and why the scope of sin is so great that none of us could overcome it on our own. And I say you have to believe that if you're a Christian because of this. Think about it. If what Pelagius taught was true, that we come into this world as a blank slate and we just of our own free volition for every sin we commit, we just choose it. If that's the case, then I ask you to consider why the cross would be necessary. I mean, all God would have to do is say, here's your list of rules, make your choice. You see, but the reason God had to become man is because we can't make the right choices. Because we're born sinners. So, contrary to Pelagius, We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're what? Sinners. 
Or to put it another way, you're born that way. You're born with inordinate desires of all sorts. And it's so deep-seated and it is of such a universal scope that you can't overcome it and you don't overcome it by your own choices. God the Son had to become man to overcome that for us. So Paulison goes on to say, our core sin patterns rarely arise only from conscious consideration and decision. Which of us ever initially decided to be proud or comfort-loving or people-pleasing or rebelliously self-willed or perverse in our romantic and sexual longings? We don't need Nike to tell us just do it. Sinners sin instinctively. That Amelia can remember no conscious moment of choosing lesbian lust is no particular surprise. Some people can remember a fork in the road moment, others can't. In most significant sin patterns, we witness a combination of specific choices and seeming just thereness. As Amelia's self-knowledge deepens, what now sounds like who me and why me will become yes me. And praise God for his incalculable grace. That when someone recognizes that, that I came into this world with disordered desires of all stripes and they manifest themselves in a myriad of ways. When we recognize that, we will lose the idea that you can just get your act together and change what you're doing. The Bible presents it this way. Asks the question through the prophet Jeremiah, a rhetorical question, can the leopard change his spots? What's the answer to that? And so too, we can't change our nature. Here's the good news. God can. And God does. And that's what the good news of the gospel is. You see, the gospel gets to the root cause. The root is not just stop doing that. The root is why do you do that? And the answer to why you do that in Romans 1 is because we are all by nature idolaters in some way, shape, or form. And some manifestations of that idolatry are clearer than others, homosexuality being one. But friends, guess what? Your pastor is an idolater. A saved idolater, a converted idolater, and still a struggling idolater. Did you know that? And so are you. And Jesus is the answer. He's the answer to my idolatry. He's the answer to your idolatry. And he's the answer to the one who struggles with same-sex attraction and the idolatry that that represents. And so... Is homosexual, homosexuality worse? The effects are worse. It, it's a clearer representation than some sins. Where does it come from? It comes from the same place all sin comes from, namely from our desires with which we come into this world with a sin nature. Back to page four then. You see in the middle of that page the two bullet points. It is true that both biology and environment influence behavior, but the Bible presents another fact, namely our sin nature. 
The Bible teaches that all sin flows from a depraved heart. Man's inner control center of the heart is wicked, deceitful, and morally corrupt. A sinful environment can have great influence upon one's actions, and the Bible repeatedly then urges us to stay away from evil people and ideas. Therefore, the Bible teaches that homosexuality, like all sins, is the result of a corrupt heart working in combination with evil influences. The ultimate cause is the sinfulness of man, but psychology and environment also play a role. While it's not to be conclusively, while it has not been conclusively proven that a tendency toward homosexual desire is genetic or that homosexuals are, quote, born that way, the Bible's clear that we are all born sinners. For man's sinful nature flows sinful appetites that he spends his entire life trying to satisfy. Sometimes the combination of depravity and environment moves man to lying, stealing, gossip, murder. Sometimes the combination moves man to a homosexual lifestyle. But even if a person was biologically prone toward homosexuality, that fact would not reduce his sin. Every person is bent towards sin, but that is no excuse. Now, I'm going to end here, and we'll pick it up next week. But at the bottom, notice I say, this is all due to our inherited nature, a nature inherited from the first man, Adam, and the first human sin that raises a question, how can I be responsible for sin I didn't commit? How can I be held responsible for actions arising from a nature I didn't choose? That's called original sin. You mean the Bible teaches that? We're going to look at what the Bible teaches about that and then how that affects homosexuality and other questions related to this important issue. We'll do that next week. Now, on the back cover of your notes, there are some events that are coming up. Some of those are this week, so I just call your attention to that. And then, guys, do we have the screen with the um, the, the welcome? Okay, you see down at the bottom there, if you're new to our church... Thank you for coming. We're delighted you're here. You see a phone number at the bottom, the 388-4466. If you want to know more about our church, just take that phone number, uh, type in the word welcome, and then we'll give you a link to a connection card, and you can tell us what you'd like to know more about. And we don't sell your information, and we don't send you a bunch of junk. We'll just uh, uh, do what you ask us to do, okay? Let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for this first week and looking at these important issues that you have written about in your book to guide our lives, the Word of God, the Bible. Thank you for your grace in giving us direction so that we don't grope in the darkness. Thank you for the omniscience, the all-knowing God who gave us Scripture. And even though its last pages were written 2,000 years ago, it's as relevant for us today as when it was written. Because you know human nature. You made us. You know our struggles. And you've given us the solution. And so thank you for giving us these principles in your word that we can apply both as a church, as individuals, as we minister, as we serve, but then as family members who love other family members who are struggling with these kinds of things. Lord, we ask you to help us ponder these things, help us to put into practice now some of that which we have learned and to learn more next week and in the weeks to come. Grant us safety. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.